I'm Sean. Hi, I'm Jordana. And welcome to Meaningful Play, the podcast where we discuss our favourite medium, video games, and the cultural and social issues that surround them on individual and collective levels. Okay, so in this episode, we're going to be talking a bit about identification and avatars. But first, let's have a bit of a chat about what we've been up to over the last few weeks. Uh, Jordana, what games have you been playing? Okay, so unfortunately, the games that I've been playing in recent weeks, such as Dark Souls 3, uh, A Link to the Past, etc., have gone on the back burner because I'm currently moving. So I split with my long-term partner recently, so I've been really wanting to play games that are a bit chill, a bit like a comfort, sort of like a warm blanket. So I'm currently playing Pokemon Heart Gold. I love gold. It's so good. <laughs> gold was my very first Pokemon game, and it was very near and dear to my heart. <laughs> Are you? Is that your favorite sort of? What's the term? Region? Is that your favorite yes, region? Yes, Johto well? is the best Johto. region. <laughs> this has been a bone of contention with me and Harris for a long time. He loves Kanto. I love Johto. I came in. Yeah, yeah I, did, I was introduced. Like I always watched it, but I got into it properly in second gen. So yeah, I was gonna say I would actually say I prefer Johto as well. Yeah. I think because it does involve those Kanto Pokemon as well. You know, yep. it is more of an extension mm. of those original 151 mm. Yes, Pokemon. 151. Yes, yes. yeah. Yep. So, yeah, it is my favourite um, region as well. Um, and there's a lot of Pokemon in that sort of, I guess, that add-on that I really enjoy as well. Mm. That I feel really sort of contributed to the lore of Pokemon. Mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. like now... The more Pokemon we get, the more the magic sort of dissipates yeah. a bit, you know. Why are those Pokemon not originally enjoy- I find that really hard in terms of believability. Right. Like the world's just suddenly opening up, like in different regions, like one at a time, yeah. rather than the world being globalised. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, who's your starter? That's the big question. Um, Cyndaquil. Oh, yeah. Cyndaquil is super cute. Yeah, so cute. Yeah, <laughs> I, usually I would go for Chikorita or um, Totodile. Yeah. So this time I actually did go to Cyndaquil because I haven't okay. before. Okay, that's yeah, so yeah. you're still playing it a bit different. I am, mm-hmm. but I like all three of those starters, I think. <laughs> I actually prefer them to the original three. Yep. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that their, their designs are just as good mm-hmm. and I like their final um, Form, evolutions like, yep. as well, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 lots of fun. Um, obviously, the trailer, or there was a Nintendo Direct recently yes. for the upcoming Pokemon game on the Switch mm-hmm. that is going to be more like the RPG we have known and loved for years. <laughs> um, what did you think of it? Did you watch the Nintendo Direct? Did you just watch the trailer? Uh, I watched, like, the, I, so the link I found was, was like, half an hour, so yeah. I watched the first couple of minutes of the yeah. reveal. And I thought it was kind of cool, I guess... For me, I stopped playing Pokemon at... Well, I finished Ruby. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started Sun for five minutes. Like on a, I bought it to go on the plane when I went on holiday, and I kind of... I just fell asleep instead. I sound like I've got, like, a sleeping <laughs> No, <problem>. no. <laughs> so I barely started Sun, um, so that's sort of where I stopped. Uh, so I'm aware of these other games. Like, I know there's Pokemon Ranger, and there's another Pokemon RPG style one where it's set in a kind of feudal Japan... I believe. I can't think what the name is now, but I was wondering if it's got inspiration from that those two games. So, I, yeah, I thought it looked really cool. I saw, I think it's meant to be the UK. Yeah, so. I must say, I think the most enjoyment I got out of that trailer was actually, like, the memes that came out of it, <laughs> like the Brexit memes. Oh, no. Like, remain and leave. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. It's uh, so yeah. good. I, I did, too like, good. they seem to be giving it a little bit of a, uh, I, 
Oof. Like a sort of fantasy, like a Western fantasy, UK fantasy kind of feel. Obviously yeah. medieval, that kind of yeah. thing. So that's kind of nice. It's a bit different. I think it's interesting, but I wonder if it's going to be too similar to X and Y. Like with France oh. as a region oh, as well. right. Because yes. that's automatically what it reminded me of. But obviously it has this industrial twist that is mm. very... Um, English. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. I thought the environments were gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that we didn't see a lot of the combat worried me a little. I feel like uh, it's going to be more of the same. The bi saw looks like it was. Yeah. They're going to be like sort of this the usual. Um, you know, they're in the top left, you're in the bottom yeah. right. It looked like the same sort of environments and stuff that we've had before, but just a bit more three D. I think. Yeah. Exactly. It feels like it's just going to be another regurgitation of the formula mm. and it's like that they're, they're just not wanting to improve upon it well, i know yeah. with um evie and P- well let's go evie and pikachu they did change things up a bit in mm-hmm. the in the sense that you didn't get random encounters and you didn't battle pokemon as you usually would mm-hmm. and that was a, that was a good change but i really do want a more competitive Pokemon game in the sense that I want a competitive single player game. You know, I want to be able to change the mode of difficulty. I do want a gym leader to actually kick my ass. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like the AI really needs to be mm-hmm. improved because obviously we now have, when did Pokemon come out? Was it 95, 96? So uh, Japan, it would have been 95. three or four, I think. Oh gosh. Po- yeah. I think. Yeah. Could no, be wrong. Yeah. But it, it's quite old and so you know you have all these demographics or all these generations at least two they've grown up with mm-hmm. po- two or three they've grown up with pokemon now and so you've got to wonder like why are they wanting to sort of block out part of their audience who is now playing mm. you know more difficult jrpgs yeah. yeah i i mean when sun and moon came out i sort of felt that that not that i've played much of it but i understand it is very different from the others and i think that could have been an attempt to sort of change things up a bit and I know some people really liked it and some really didn't like it so I guess you know it's the, it's the age-old series thing where it's really polarizing I think so but I think it's just regressive in the sense mm. that you know it's wanting to handhold you yeah. know I guess that's it's reflective of the current environment of gaming or, or the landscape mm. that we're currently living in mm. where you know games are allegedly easier than what they were back in the day where you know you sort of you bought a guidebook or you sort of figured <laughs> it out yourself because you know that there, there wasn't really the internet to sort mm. you out until you know the late 90s so it kind of feels like Pokemon is a game that is so easy to pick up like, I don't know why they're putting in all these extra measures to make it easier for kid gamers. Yeah, I guess it's, it's about having the choice. <laughs> they adapt to these systems. They can figure out Pokemon. Mm. Or at least just give us modes so everyone can play. Or, or at least want to buy it. I don't want to buy it. Yeah. But then again, some people will buy it regardless because it has that Pokemon mm. name. It has they that, want to it. it has that mm. quality um, stamped onto it. So yeah. I know. think game modes would be, would be a good idea. Um, because then, in theory, I mean... In theory, you just have to change some numbers, right? Yeah, it would just be yes. like, okay, multiply by this. Uh, so ideally, that would be how it works. Yeah. So that would be really nice. Um, yeah, I do feel like Pokemon Go is kind of where they're seeing a lot of adults who sort of grew up with Pokemon going. Mm-hmm. There was a study I read a while ago, and they were basically saying the majority of players they found were, I think it was 20s. In the twenties, which I think, okay, well, that's just, that's me. Yes. <laughs> that's a nostalgia thing. That's where the adults are. So maybe I, I don't know. Maybe part of the strategy is to say, all right, well, that's maybe more for adults, whereas 
I nearly said Game Boy games. <laughs> the, um, the games are more for kids and things like, I think Pokken Tournament could be more for adults yes. as well. But again, yeah. like I haven't really seen that here. I saw it a lot in Japan. If the battles were like that, oh, I'd be so into it. Yeah, that isn't as big here in Australia it's either. Not, no. So yeah. So what have you been playing? Uh, well, lately I've been playing a little indie game called Infra. So you're this engineer and you've got your torch and you've got your camera and the idea is that you explore these abandoned old um, buildings like uh, energy production buildings and places like that and you take photos of the damage so you can report back to your boss. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, it's quite different, right? It's quirky, yeah. yeah. Um, In the process, you sort of, you you notice newspaper articles or there's like notes on the computer or the desk and you sort of realise there's a bit more going on with something being leached into the sewerage system and the political state of the place you're in at the time. So it's it's kind of got that little detective aspect that I really enjoy and that little bit of, like, mysteriousness that I really like. Uh, but we kind of... So we got, I believe, halfway or two-thirds through and we kind of stopped playing that for a while because we just found it was getting quite repetitive. And there's a lot, the, there's a lot of puzzles. So you explore and you have to... You know, you might see a poster that has an image of pipes or something and they're different colours and you have to try to explore to do the valves and that sort of thing, which was fun the first few times, but it kind of got a bit repetitive and it got to a point where I was like, I think you need to actually be an engineer to figure this out because I cannot figure this out. Um, but but I really enjoyed what I did play of it. I just think that was enough for me. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds adequately challenging. Yes. yes. Yeah. Like that's just what you want every now and then. Yeah. Like yeah. it fulfilled its function and yeah. Yeah. But other than that, I recently got Persona 5. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't played through much of it, uh, but so far I really enjoy it. Um, mm-hmm. I got super, super excited when you get off the train because so many of the places in the game are based on real places in Tokyo. And I've been Tokyo, to Tokyo a couple of times and I just got so excited because you get off at this station. I think the station is uh, Yongenjaga, but it's mm-hmm. based on Sangenjaga, which is a real place in Tokyo. And you get off the train and the train plays the jingle as it's leaving the station. And, you know, on the floor they have, in Japan, they have these yellow ridge tiles. And I believe they're for blind people because the texture is different. And you can, you know, that goes throughout the whole station. The sign for the exits are bright yellow. The sign for the JR line is green. And I just, I just went, oh, my God, this is the same. So I got a really, like strong sense of excitement and a little bit of nostalgia as well and then you know later on we ended up you end up in Shibuya and it's we actually brought up a picture on our phone of what we took in Shibuya when we went and went it lines up it's the same and I got a really big kick out of that I must say like I haven't been to Japan mm-hmm. but when but when I was playing Persona 5 I definitely felt like it was almost like a love letter to Tokyo. Mm. It's kind of like when you see Hollywood films like particularly I think it was La La Land and when it came out all the reviewers were saying you know this is sort of this is a love letter to Hollywood about Hollywood. Okay. And I feel like Persona is is that with Tokyo really mm-hmm. and Japan more generally because obviously all the Persona games are set in not necessarily Tokyo but other regions and cities mm-hmm. in Japan as well. But yeah, I I just love the way that it. I guess what we're going to be talking about today is identification mm. and even though I I'm obviously not a Japanese <laughs> high school schoolboy um I kind of feel like one when I play that game, or yes. at least like from all the sort of culture of Japan that I've, you know, internalized through like anime and, mm. you know, the cultural products they've produced, like that is 
I don't want to say it's like a pure form, but I feel like it, it brings together all those sort of, I don't want to say tropes, because they're not necessarily tropes, as you're saying. They've put a lot of effort into, mm. you know, actually implementing all those intricacies. But yeah, it just, it feels like what I imagine Japan is. <laughs> yeah. well, it is, it is. Yeah. And like, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but for me, it's it, you're getting a little bit of an idea of yes. what it's like. And that's, yeah, yeah brilliant. I'm so glad you're enjoying it so far. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a little bit hesitant about the save system because I know you can't save all the time. And I, yeah, I tend not to play games for long bursts, yeah. <laughs> especially in the evening. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's okay. We'll see how we go. I'm yeah. a serial saver as well. Yeah. I didn't have too much of an issue. There is one palace where you come across these enemies that are really, really awful. They can one-shot you. Because at that point in the game, you don't really have the... Oh, might have just been my playthrough. I'm sure other people had personas that could deal with those specific enemies. Right. But when I did it, it was just sort of like, oh, I want to flee this enemy because I've been playing for three hours and I haven't saved. Uh, yeah, and it, it did happen to me once where two hours was just deleted. I was so upset. Did you come back to it quickly after that? I did. did? I did okay. come back to it quite quickly because obviously, even though your team learns the sort of weaknesses of enemies... Even though that information, you know, is obviously deleted if you die and haven't you saved, know you know, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's easy to make time back up. Okay, that's yeah. good to know. Because I am, I am a serial saver. So mm -hmm. when I first played Bioshock, I had it on PC and I realised there was, I think, F5 or something was the quick save button and I kind of used all my saves. <laughs> And there are a hundred <laughs> saves. And it came up with a message saying, no, 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 you've used them all. And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, this was me with the original Resident Evil remake. I played it last year. Mm -hmm. absolutely loved it. But, oh, my gosh, all I did was whinge about the increments because <laughs> I used them all in, like, the first few hours. And then I didn't find any oh, for no. ages. So I had to play for hours and hours. And, I mean, that did elevate my experience the horror experience totally. because yeah. you know I was like oh I'm gonna have to do this all again do this boss again etc etc but yeah I got through it I it's, got through it and it taught me a valuable lesson about <laughs> saving it's a very unique idea and I yeah I'm always torn because I'm I'm because I don't play for long bursts I go oh that's really inconvenient and it might put me off playing the game but at the same time it does yeah, like, like you said, it adds to your horror experience. It adds to the way that you play the game. You have to think mm -hmm. about it rather than just frivolously, you know, just do whatever you want. So Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Mm. So let's start talking about avatars and identification. Yeah. First, I should probably have a bit of a think about what we mean by all those things, I suppose. I think we should. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about avatars, uh, to me, I usually use avatar to talk about character in a game that you design. Yeah. Usually I say avatar to refer to that. So, you know, in WoW or something, you get to design how you look. Whereas I tend to use character when I'm talking about set up character, like... A player character. Yeah, like yeah. Geralt or something. Yeah. I always say Geralt or Geralt. <laughs> I mean, you know what's funny? Sorry to interrupt. No, you know no. what's funny is that he came up consistently while I was thinking about what we're going to talk oh, about today. Good. So I feel like we must identify with Geralt. I feel like we should <laughs> talk about that later. Yeah, we yeah, should. His deep should. manly voice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess for identification, I think this will come out a bit in our discussion. That's sort of a really tricky thing in game studies. Some people say, oh, it'd be silly. You don't feel like you're exactly this character. Whereas for other people, it can kind of be a bit more fluid. It can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. 
I was going yeah. to say I really struggle with this subject in a way because I myself don't know how I really identify with player characters and avatars. Mm-hmm. I find it to be quite a subjective experience yeah. for me and one that's really unpredictable as we will talk about in a minute. Oh, perfect. Well, that, that yeah. makes for a more interesting discussion. It's be, it'd be boring if it was simple and categorical and black and white. Yeah, that's good. Absolutely. <laughs> So in games where you do design your own avatars, uh, what kind of designs do you tend to make? Okay, so I will say the most important factors for me when creating a character or an avatar in a game is firstly, they must fit the world. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to maximise the amount of immersion I may have with a game Mm -hmm. by designing characters that I feel will fit that game. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I'm playing something like Bloodborne, you know, my characters look quite pale. They have ashen hair that's styled long and in intricate styles, you know, but they also have bright unnatural eye colours to sort of reflect the alternative Victorian universe in which it is set. Mm -hmm. Um, But in something like Fallout 4, you know, I'm trying to create a character that looks like I could pluck them from eating breakfast (laughs) in the dining room of their nuclear family's, you know, four-bedroom house in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. So that's the first factor. Um, I think the second factor for me, and potentially the most important, is the stats associated with, so the class associated Mm -hmm. with that character. So again, when I play something like a series like Soulsborne, where you know your class really does determine, you know, the small set of equipment that you're going to use, it's important to choose your class rather than really dilly-dally about the aesthetics of your avatar. So in them, the classes look quite different. So They don't look quite they different. Don't? Okay. No, no, mm-hmm. it's really just choosing a class. Okay. So, But at the same time, I guess I do want my character to look like that class as well because yeah. it would be weird to sort of make a magician character or an arcane character and not have them look like a witch or a wizard. Sure. Yeah, it's about Again, fitting I the game exactly, world for you. Exactly, yeah. 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 So it has to fit. So even though, you know, I say that, oh, you know, the aesthetics don't matter to me, they obviously do, and I still do put a good 40 minutes into, like, the character creation oh, screen. Yeah. Like, it takes me forever to create my character, <laughs> but it's really about how that character is going to look within the game world that really matters to me sure. and how they're going to perform. Yeah. yeah. And what about yourself? Uh, well, for me, firstly, I have to say I also have a reputation for spending like an hour trying to decide what I'm going to do for my character. Like, so when yeah. we play like MMO with friends and like we've just all bought the game, I have to say, hang on, Shan, give Shan an hour. We'll let you know when she's done because <laughs> I always agonize over what I'm going to look like. I think everyone does though, right? <laughs> I just... hope so. Otherwise, <laughs> we're just a bit unusual. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think avatars, are, the way they look is really important. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Like the people that just go, okay, you know, it doesn't really matter to me. Maybe their first playthrough doesn't really matter to them. You know, maybe they're wanting to play, like, again, sorry, I'm going to bring Dark Souls up again, <laughs> but their first playthrough doesn't matter as much as the preceding playthroughs. Okay. So, you know, that's when they're playing more competitively. And mm-hmm. so maybe then they're going to put a lot more effort into their customization and the way their avatar looks. And mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I used to tend to design, like, characters that look kind of similar to me. So I'm blonde mm-hmm. hair and blue-eyed. And I used to like be like, oh, I guess that's me. So I guess I'd better make a character that looks a bit like that. Like it's not meant not meant to be meme but mm-hmm. has some elements, you know. Over the past few years, I've actually started using the randomizer function on games and then adjusted them 
to make them more my kind of thing. I, I feel like I've started doing that because firstly, I, if you do the same thing all the time, you have the same looking characters in every game and that's like super boring. And also I was trying to adventure a little bit more, like try to be like, okay, well, maybe, maybe if we use the word persona, so let's talk about persona yep. before, maybe this persona <laughs> does look a bit different for whatever reason. And that doesn't mean they're not you. It's worth thinking, you know, when I started playing games with avatars, I was a teenager and, you know, when you're a teenager, a lot of your world revolves around who you are and trying to understand your identity and stuff. Yep. So I feel like that could be partly why I was designing characters that more looked like what I look like versus now I feel like I'm adventuring out a bit more. Did you find that you were sort of idealising yourself? Like, oh, this is a good question. Were your characters, like, hot? Because mine certainly well, are. I do not make non-hot avatars. Oh, well, <laughs> so if you can change body type, I hated the tall, skinny, big boob, big bum thing. Yeah. So I would try to make them look average or more like me, which is kind of short and <laughs> a little bit curvy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would never be like, oh, they're tall and skinny and amazing. Because I just, I felt like that was really stereotypical. Especially if you know, I'm doing gender for games, so I think I was very like hyper aware of that. I suppose. Mm-hmm. So I guess, uh, like, so when I played Divinity: Original Sin two, you can pick from the pre-made character and adjust them a bit because they have their own storylines in the game. Yeah. So I picked Sibyl, who is an elf who was enslaved, but now she's free. So the elves in that game are quite different, I suppose, from typical fantasy elves. Like they're very tall and slender, like what you'd mm-hmm. expect. They're almost tree-like. Oh, wow. And if you look at their limbs, they have these muscles and the muscles I would describe also as almost tree-like in the sense that there's you can see the outline of them all, a lot of them, that they almost look like branches conglomerated together. So they're quite unusual looking. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, well, I want to play this character. She's an elf, so that's how she looks already. Uh, so I used the randomizer and I ended up picking, instead of picking like very whitey pale person like me because I'm quite pale and I'm picking like medium dark skin and I picked this beautiful brilliant headdress you know elven so these feathers and these leaves and these horns and it just looked very mm-hmm. ethereal and very dramatic and she had quite dark hair as well so like nothing like me at all but I loved that she looked really powerful and I chose her class to be a metamorph, which really is a druid who can make themselves more animal-like. And then she ended up using attacks that gave her horns to charge. And so I felt like it, it looked very dramatic. And she always, also, I, I ended up using a big axle sword for most of the game, which was really different to how I normally play. I wanted to play something a bit differently. So I was like, maybe my ideal person in Divinity is like this, like they're really powerful and... I was going to say, it sounds like, you know, rather than drawing from your own appearances, you're drawing from your own values and what you want to see... I know, and other people's personalities, you know, this this great sense of strength and, you know, I guess honour as well. Yes. Yeah, it's all very dramatic. And in the game, because I have very strong principles about a lot of things, so in the game I would be like, I have high strength and high intimidation so I can just say what I want. (laughs) So I would be like, (laughs) my character's standing next to all the others real tall and with this, like, really dramatic thing on saying, like, no, 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 you're wrong. And it was just such a good feeling. (laughs) But... Yeah, I mean, other than that, uh, in WoW, I have like eight characters, so I won't go into all of those. But in yeah. general, my principle there is why play a human where you can play a non-human? And this is a thing I have with yes. Harris all the time. He's like, you always fix human. And I'm like, why? Really? That's so boring. Why would Harris, you pick a human? Why? Yeah, yeah, you should ask him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, I never play human. I don't see the point. So my first character is a night elf. She has white hair. It looks kind of cool. I liked elves. 
and it's a hunter, so she got a white tiger. So that was like my main draw, I think, when I first made that character because I loved big cats when I was younger. Uh, but my most favorite character is a Draenei who, they're meant to be an alien race. They kind of look like uh, satyrs. They're bluey, purpley, mm-hmm. and they've got hooves and that. And um, and again, actually, she's quite similar to Sibylle. She's quite tall, I suppose, and very powerful looking. And she's a frost maze, so she has you know, the cool cape and all that sort of thing. And I really like those characters, though, because they do look different, you know? Like, like I when I pick ones that are too similar, like, to human, I get a bit bored. Yeah, mm. I, I don't know if this was quite a meme, but I remember this sort of video going around that was arguing, I think, that humans shouldn't be considered, should not be erased in fantasy-based <laughs> games because they are so boring. Like, They're so boring! Well, <laughs> I know people pick them because, generally, I know in D&D... It's the um, stats, right? Yes. Yeah. They, they, in D&D, they get... I, believe they get jack of all trades which means mm-hmm. you can add points into anything you want and in wow as well i think it's a bit similar like i think when i asked harris why do you always pick humans that's so boring <laughs> um he basically was like because they do get the stat bonuses and he was like i don't have a problem with playing a human and they get a bonus so why not yeah i just i just think if you're gonna play why not play something else <laughs> no 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 i totally agree i mean in skyrim i play an orc which was really different. I'd never played an orc before. But I, I, I have to admit, I'm going to go against the grain here and say I didn't find Skyrim particularly engaging. I didn't feel that connected to the game world. Like my character, no one, I met a couple other orcs. No one really said anything. Not that they have to say things about race all the time, but it kind of felt like I was just gliding through this world and didn't really, my character as there such There was didn't no matter. impact. Yeah. That was my issue with Skyrim as well. I've only played a few hours on it. So, you know, feel free to like call me out on Skyrim, <laughs> but it felt like I was just dropped in. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I want to feel connected to the game world. Like my decisions really, really matter. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously when you're, there's like brotherhoods and like guilds and whatnot that you can join in game. And obviously you make decisions and that can impact, you know, your standing with those, mm-hmm. with those bodies. But otherwise, it just felt I was going to use the term barren but obviously it's such a beautiful world but there is a certain barrenness to it no, I agree a sort with of that. like untouchability mm. Mm. I, do, I do agree with how you felt in that game because I, I know people have got like hundreds and hundreds of hours I'm like oh that's brilliant I just couldn't quite I didn't feel that connected to the game to really get into it that much yeah me yeah. too so I guess my next thing I'm kind of wondering about is if you ever play male characters or... So I generally do tend... Okay, I should also note this goes for like player characters, so pre-established mm-hmm. characters made by, you know, designers and also my own avatars. I generally do tend to play as female characters. When I'm given that affordance, I take it. Um, and I do enjoy female aesthetics in games mm-hmm. more than male ones, unfortunately. Um, there are certain <laughs> games where I feel like some male as- like cosmetics are better than females, but generally it tends to be the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, even with sexualized characters, I feel like female characters just receive a bit more attention in design. I feel <laughs> yes, like they're, they do. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> but they're just a bit more interesting to me. Sure. So I think that's why I tend to gravitate towards female characters, not just because I'm female myself and necessarily want to identify. Mm-hmm. However, in the online games that I play, I don't really play online okay. games as much anymore, which is why I'm a bit, you know, I'm a bit more silent in terms of how I create my avatars sure. or I don't have a really clear idea. But I must say in the past when I did play a few MMOs and the like, I did receive harassment in playing oh, a female you did. avatar. Yeah, just people asking, do you have a boyfriend? Or, you know, like... <laughs> they could live on the other side of the world, who cares? Like the 2007 <laughs> version of Send Nudes, essentially. Oh, no. You know, 
no, and so you do get attention as a female if you're playing a female avatar. And so I could totally see myself playing a male character now. Yeah, well, and yeah. I know in a lot of research I have read, a lot of women do report playing a male avatar for that very reason. Um, I mean, I've been lucky enough not to, or I haven't had anything like harassing. I've had like gross things be said, but yes. nothing, yeah, but nothing. But to me, too... that is a form of harassment. It is, it and is. And it's painful. You're just like, mm. leave me alone. I just mm. <laughs> do my own thing. Mm. You know, I just want to, you know, live in this fantasy world without having to deal with the same misogynistic crap that yeah. happens in this world. That's the thing, I guess, you can't it separate them. You can't, yeah, you, you can't. can't. But yeah. yeah, no, that's really interesting because I did yes. read some research on that and I thought, oh, who do I know who does that? So you, you would be open to... I would be open to doing that, but mm. I... I kind of hate the thought of having to do that as well because it feels like I'm being forced into a certain Mm. role once again. Mm. I was going to tell a story about my brother playing Maple Story. So (laughs) my brother would consistently, and his best friend, would consistently play as female avatars simply to derive goods from males in Maple Story. So I've, yeah, so research has said this yes. too. Yeah, people have said this for a while and a few other ones. Yeah, they've said yeah. exactly that. And I, okay, when I read, when I read this in an article, I thought, well, no one's ever given me stuff because I play a female character. So why are these people getting Because everything? they know, they know the male psyche, <laughs> the heteronormative male psyche. You've got a bit of research on this. So I'll put these in the show notes. So hopefully some people can have a read and be really interested in it because there are some studies that have looked at this and I, okay, there's a suggestion that for a male player plays with a female avatar and then they get sexual comments for some it can make them go oh this is what women often have to deal with and it can be a moment of experiencing what it is like to be that other person or a moment of increased empathy or understanding mm-hmm. so it, I, I feel like it can go that way it sort of can go either way I suppose depending on your tendencies and your experiences but I mean for me like I always play a female character that sounds really bad to me because I think oh does that mean you're hinging everything on being a woman and I feel like, okay, maybe I am, but there's so many games that you can't play a female character in and they're not the title character that why would I not play one when I'm given the choice, I suppose? That's what I was going to say. If the choice Mm. is there, you take it. Mm. Because, you know, even though we are seeing the industry change in terms of uh, the affordances surrounding female characters, even with pre-established characters, there's still this sort of, how would you say it? I don't want to call it necessarily a discourse, but I guess this perception that there aren't as many female options in games. I'm not sure if I necessarily adhere to that now, Mm. yet because we've been living with it for so many years, it kind of feels like, oh, female choice, I'm going to take it, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. Like, it's definitely got a lot better Mm -hmm. over the last, like, even decade or so. In the last five years alone, I think it's got a lot Mm -hmm. better. But yeah, like, we have grown up with having certain experiences so for me the times I've had to play a guy character has outweighed female Mm -hmm. and I'm kind of like well why not and especially if you're gonna think about avatars and MMOs where like it's a little bit like you whether you change your appearance or not like for me being a woman does impact how I view the world obviously I'm doing gender as well Mm -hmm. as part of game studies so it is something that matters to me you know, Reddit studies like Stabile. She found the lesbian women played Tauren or Blood Elves in WoW. So Tauren, they sort of look like bulls almost. Like they're, so, they're kind of the female ones are really bulky. You know, they're quite muscular still. Our Blood Elves, which in WoW are <laughs> the very pretty, pretty elves <laughs> who mm-hmm. are very and the male characters are almost like Kendall, like kind of feminine 
yeah. and quite very beautiful with his yeah. hair and with the yeah so that that was quite interesting because so it wasn't just about even though male players do tend to gender bend a lot more than female players they kind of went actually we also have this interesting finding that well, some lesbian women do play as torrent and blood elves because the stereotypes for men and women kind of get mixed up a little bit because they mm-hmm. then they're not quite as stereotypical as other races you're not yeah. having to explicitly perform gender then you know yeah. it's almost like I don't want to say relaxing but you know you're able to sort of double in those certain characteristics that we you know unfortunately adhere to in reality with gender roles and the like mm. but I must say I do enjoy androgynous characters as well mm. but I will talk about that later when we actually talk about identification with specific characters okay sure yeah. I'm interested in that because I don't know <laughs> yes. many androgynous characters in games so mm. yeah I mean, I guess one thing to think about is like how we view ourselves in comparison to the avatar. And I've, I've got together a few, there's, there's so many different ways to categorize this. And I don't necessarily believe that these categorizations are distinct from each other or that they're the be or end all because I just don't subscribe to that. But they're kind of interesting ways, I guess, to reflect on how we view ourselves. So in an article by Banks called Object Me Symbiote Other, uh, they came up with four categories for player-avatar relationships and they kind of felt like the player-avatar relationship is social and that the player and the avatar contributes to that relationship, which might sound like a bit of an unusual way to view it, but I I guess it's sort of saying there's agency on both ends. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Banks said the... one category was avatar as object, so that's for players who feel that the avatar is just a tool in the game world. Um, or they said avatar is me is another one where the avatar is like an extension or a mirror of the player. Uh, so that sort of reifies, they say, the player's sense of self in the game. Third category was avatar as symbiote, where they say the avatar is intertwined with the player. So it's not just like a mask they wear or a personality they take on, but they suggest it's got something to do with an ideal self. And the fourth one is just avatar is a distinct social agent where they were saying it's basically just for how I deal with other people. <laughs> That one, I I would suggest I'm probably two or three, like Avatar as me or Avatar as Symbiote. Like, I guess I do see my Avatar as an extension of myself in that they follow the principles that I really believe in. And I wouldn't do something in the game world that I didn't personally believe in, like if you're talking about quest options and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But at the same time, I do... Now you've mentioned this specifically with Seville and um, my other, my Draenei character in WoW, I'm thinking, oh, maybe I do sort of treat my character as an ideal self, even though I didn't really think I initially did. So I think I would sit somewhere in there. I'm just not convinced mm. in, these char- in these categories at all. I think that your avatar, even if you don't see your avatar as acting as a tool, it is. It is a tool. It is a tool. So with these categories, I find them a bit superfluous in the sense that I think that they all are interconnected. And I'm Mm. sure that Banks mentions this um, in the article, but I find it really difficult to put myself into um, any of these categories because I do all those things. You know, (laughs) depending on what part of the game I'm at or what I'm really interested in in that game. So my avatar is a tool. You know, it is an extension of me to some extent. Mm. It is a symbol in that I'm the same. I do like my characters in games to reflect my inner principles. And it is also a social agent. Mm. I 
I'm not really a social person in games, but unfortunately, if you are playing games where you know, you're interacting <laughs> with other people's avatars, then obviously it's a distinct social agent yeah. um, at different points. And even if you don't necessarily want it to be. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure where I sit there. It's just, okay, yeah. yeah, it's just too fluid for me. Yeah. I just want to take from all these different categories. Which, and yeah. It just becomes this really, I don't want to say it's undefinable because it's not, but it's this amalgamation that just is. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're in a, yeah. I'm going to be very good. You're in assemblage. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, the other one I found was by uh, Mancini and Sibylla, which was offline personality and avatar customization. And they, they sort of, I guess they took a slightly different approach. And they looked at those personality dimensions, like the uh, extroversion, agreeableness, consciousness, emotional stability. And for them, they said there were four kinds of profiles. They said like idealized and actualized. So ideal is of course your ideal self and actualized is probably a bit more realistic to what you're like. And there they say the avatar is seen as better or more socially desirable than the offline self. And then they had alter ego and negative ego where the players choose to be less socially desirable, which I found this really odd. I try to stick to my principles and I guess I am ideal in that. My characters are a bit more blunt and are a bit more willing to say what they think. Mm-hmm. But then being socially desirable, maybe that's not socially desirable. I like to think it's not too awkwardly blunt, but it's just being assertive. But maybe that isn't socially desirable. But I guess at the same time, I mean, I know that Harris plays games and that sometimes plays as the, as the evil character. So in that context, he would be playing a character that's like less socially desirable, I suppose, than their real self. I must say I oscillate here as well, depending on what mood I'm in and my (laughs) own sense of curiosity. So, you know, I may be performing a character that is socially desirable and maybe I'll jump on one day and just be totally undesirable in my sociability. You know what I mean? Mm. If I want to make a bad choice, I'm like, hmm, I wonder what happens if I make this bad choice. Yeah, or, it's, you it's know, my character to yeah, play exactly. an experiment because you know yeah. it's not, it just doesn't necessarily represent what you would do in real life. So, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I don't think that my own experience with my avatars really sticks to one of these categories. I think generally I tend to be like idealised. Like I do tend to have a um, high sense of um, social desirability in online games when I do actually play them but otherwise yeah I I really take from all of these and I just see my playthrough as I guess not necessarily adhering to one of these explicitly but more reflecting all these you know external and internal factors that Mm. you know impact these and depending on which are more prevalent at the time impacts how my character or avatar behaves. Especially if you think about situations where you you click on an answer and what they do or say is not quite what you expect which happens to me all the time and I go (laughs) oh so yeah I think there's so many just Discrepancies here, I suppose. There is, yeah. I mean, the final one I found was when I was looking at in specific, specifically gender bending by our Pike and she called playful gender swapping. They said that from all the people they looked at, they came up with three general types of players. Again, they overlap, but they're kind of interesting to talk about. The appearance-centered types, they said there were two kinds. Ideal expression, of course, their ideal version of themselves, and that could be gender bending or could not. And appearance prioritise sort of are a bit less about ideal self, but more about just li- liking to customise and liking to change appearances and the beauty of different characters. 
Yeah, that's yeah. definitely me. <laughs> He's giving me a very intense look. Yes. <laughs> like, it's important uh, to me for the characters to look nice. Like, in WoW, you can go to the Transmog and you can, once you have some good gear, you can alter the appearance if they're in the same category as these other ones. And I just went, oh, now I can look really cool. And they're like, you enjoy it. It's a big part of it. Exactly. Like, if you're spending hours in a game, then you want to look at something that is attractive. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> this is the truth. <laughs> uh, the second type they had was community-centred. So they said... Socialization are players who design avatars with the attitude that people will want to talk to them, which they said a lot of people chose female avatars because people tend to be more friendly to fem- to women. And the other kind they had was ostentation. They said trying to get attention by being unique, which I guess I feel like in games, like I started playing Anthem as well recently, and you can change the colors. You want to be unique. Like you don't want to have the same color scheme as everybody else, but I didn't do it so that other people would talk to me because I don't talk to randoms when I play those kinds of games. And the third kind was achievement-centred. So they said for one type, achieving players choose gender according to the capabilities, level caps and that. So they assume that gender made a difference in the game. So whether that's a game where female characters do have different abilities to male characters and then they go, well, if I want to play a wizard and a wizard better to be a guy, then they'll pick that, which most games thankfully don't have that. (laughs) And the other one was class prioritised players and they use gender that matches the avatar's role or class, which I thought was really interesting because even though, okay, let's say that there isn't a game-based difference between picking male or female if you want to be um, a wizard, but they kind of did things like say, oh, well, sorcerer tends to be a female to me because um, they're magic character, so they've got maybe they've got wig armor, maybe where they wear robes, which is a bit more feminine. So I pick a female versus I want to play a fighter or a warrior, and that's you know typically masculine. So I'm going to play a male character. So I guess that one I found I found interesting because it makes me think about uh, what you said before about fitting the game world mm-hmm. and what would make the most sense. And I was going to say as well, I feel like we see this due to previous iterations of this pattern in games like for for example Final Fantasy I always sort of associate magic and Final Fantasy with female figures mm-hmm. while you know warriors do tend to be more male mm-hmm. and so I feel like that is an unfortunate result of that mm-hmm. I feel like in terms of these ties I'm definitely somebody who is appearance or uh, prioritized and class prioritized like I very neatly fit in those <laughs> probably ideal expression as well definitely not community standard types no. if I'm joining a guild I'm not joining the guild's uniform I'm sorry <laughs> yeah I'm not wearing no <laughs> no no <laughs> So, I mean, considering all these different thoughts we go through when trying to design our characters, I kind of want to think a little bit now about less avatars and more maybe regular characters that we play in games. Because people in game studies always talk about this idea of identification, which, like I said earlier, mm-hmm. is so varied and can mean so many different things to different people. How important is this concept of identification to you or how do you view it in games? So I recently revisited Adrienne Shaw's Gaming at the Edge, Sexuality and Gender at the Margins of Gamer Culture. So it was published in 2015. Mm. And there was one section in her con- in her conclusion that I felt really astutely reflected how I feel about identification and representation. And that is, and I quote, <laughs> that pleasure is in many ways ephemeral, end quote. So for me this sense of desire that Shaw talks about, it's really fluid for me as well. You know, this desire I have, whether I'm creating a character, whether I'm choosing an established player character to play, I feel like there's no real 
fixed way of thinking about my inner desires in response to creation or choice. I just feel like, you know, I go into a game, I look at my options. I'm sure that there are factors that impact, you know, who I choose. For example, the fact that I am female. I'm more likely to play as a female, but I just feel like it's it's just totally fluid for me. If I want to play a hot male character <laughs> and there's a female choice, well, that's just the way it's going to be. Yeah. Like, my desire is ephemeral. It's fluid <laughs> and ever-changing and it you're is. constantly making connections. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And what about yourself? Is identification really important to you? I'm such a mixed bag on this. When I first started out in honours looking at game studies, I was like, oh, I love identification. I can totally get into that. But as I went on, I kind of developed a bit more of a nuanced approach to looking Mm -hmm. at it, which is fair. I remember Shaw had an article from 2013 where she basically says identification is like assumed to be really important and desirable in game studies, which is like, yes, totally. And she kind of suggests that it's not quite as important as people tend to think it is. Mm-hmm. So she had two people playing Katamari Damacy. For those who don't know, it's a game where you're this adorable little cartoon dude and you're rolling up a ball to roll, you're rolling up like things in the world and you eventually roll up the world. It's like a strange little party game, I suppose. Very fun, great soundtrack. Um, mm-hmm. And Akami is this game that's set in old Japan. Yeah. You're uh, yeah, the goddess mm-hmm. in wolf form and you have these god powers and that. And they said that there's so many elements in these games that are important for the player, but not the character. So in Katamari, like the character, the prince is just a cute little dude. He doesn't really matter that much. But the mechanics of the game is what matters to the player. You know, mm-hmm. where is the ball going fast or slow? How are you directing it? How are you accidentally running over and picking up something you don't want to pick up? And Akami, I suppose they were saying it's similar because when you do uh, God Powers, you press a button and it causes the game. This music plays and you draw with the controller and you Mm -hmm. you draw the pattern you need to draw. That's actually more about mechanics than it is about the character itself. Uh, So she suggests that the fact that games are interactive can actually undermine identification. Mm-hmm. Which I find really, that was really interesting because it was probably one of the first things I read that really challenged my interest in getting that sense of identification or getting that sense of emotional understanding of the character in a game. But I, I tend to take a bit more of what I would consider to be a Deleuzean view with becoming. So Phyllis Kantari, becoming is this process where you're not becoming the other thing necessarily, but you are interacting with it and inter- interacting with it, you change in some capacity and become something else. So it's not that when playing Akami, I become a Matarasu or I know exactly what it's like for a Matarasu in this wolf form who used to be this amazing goddess and is now trying to regain powers. But I get a little bit of an idea of what, it, what it's like for that character in that world. Your role, you know, changes, you change a bit, you become a bit different from yourself, you know, and in that context, you bring your own desires, your own thoughts, your own tendencies to the game and the character is sort of part of that as well. So I guess I sort of see it in that way. It's not so straightforward as you are the character. It almost comes back to Banks's category in, you know, expanding this category a bit, in considering Avatar as object. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about actually seeing your Avatar as a way of facilitating combat or mechanics and the like, your Avatar really becomes a tool. And even though we can, you know, relate to that character in some way, like, 
I totally agree with Shaw's perception because when I'm in the middle of, you know, fighting a boss, I'm not thinking about the way my character looks when she rolls away. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm focusing on the task at hand and I really don't feel as if you were actually that character and you're like really trying to defeat this huge demon. You're not really getting that same sense of fear that your oh, character would be yeah. actually experiencing in that moment no, because not. you know if, if you die, you're just going to be able to restart. Mm. But, you know, in that game world, if that was an actual world and death was a thing in that world, your character would actually die. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And so, yeah, I totally get that that sense of identification as being, it's almost oscillating throughout. Yes. yes. Sometimes you identify, other times you don't. But it's sort of like this, I guess, I don't want to even say spectrum, but that's sort of how I perceive mm-hmm. it. Sometimes I'm highly connected to my character. Other times I'm not. And there are points in the game where I feel like, depending on how connected your character is to the the narrative, like particularly if you're playing you're playing a player character, there can be points in the game where your character does something that's completely unlike yourself yeah. and, and you're trying to project on them. I always think about Titus from Final Fantasy oh, X. Yeah. You know, he is so immature at the beginning of the game. The laughing. Like, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I just totally can't relate to Titus here. I really have to go back to my own teenagehood to really connect with mm. him now. But at the end of the game, you know, when he when he does make those big sacrifices and you, you see his character arc really mature, that's when I start to, to be able to identify with mm. him but I'm never able to identify with him during combat no and so no. yeah I feel like identification is it it's grossly overrated <laughs> I think um it's interesting you say Final Fantasy X because I, I kind of forget he's the main character as bad as that yes, sounds because when yeah. I play I feel like I'm spread across all these characters you are and um and I think as well like look the writing makes a difference. I feel that the English version of the game, I don't know about Japanese version, but the English version of the game is kind of dag. The, the dubbing isn't great. The the story, the, the script isn't great. You kind of have a little bit of a laugh at a lot of things they say because they sound really daggy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I feel like in some games it can be really impactful. Like even p- playing Origins, again, I'm not Bayek, but there are moments in the game like when his son passes away and he, you find these uh, rocks in special formations and they're constellations in the sky, which I got a big kick out of because they were like, here is um, Osiris or Wasira and this is, I'm telling you about him because um, he promised his son he would go to visit all these constellations and tell him about him. And for a moment, like I did sort of feel like, no, I didn't fully understand what it's like to lose a child in such a horrible way. But I... I felt that I underwent a little bit of becoming. Like I sort of got a little bit of an idea and I felt a little bit of something that I would normally never feel or wouldn't really uh, have the possibility of having a little bit of understanding of how that feels. I agree and I feel like that's something I experienced in Heavy Rain, Mm -hmm. obviously with Ethan Mars and obviously when um, Sean goes missing. Oh, Sean! Yes, Sean. <laughs> oh, that became such but, a joke. <laughs> I mean, it's terrifying. It is, and I mean, yeah. it does take away from the seriousness <laughs> of the fact that his son has yeah. actually been kidnapped Sorry, by the I didn't origami. Mean to no, put no, your no, point no, no, no. But um, yeah, I definitely felt that. I'm like, can you imagine how it actually feels yeah. to have then, your your offspring kidnapped yeah. by a serial killer, and you know it's the serial mm. killer because they're leaving clues mm. for you. Obviously, you, you can't fully experience or know what that actually feels like but at the same time I feel like Heavy Rain does a really good job of presenting how distraught you would actually be Mm. and I think because we're not used to seeing such drama in games that it does end up having that comical effect and particularly you know with the 
the actual design of the characters as well. You know, the way that they look, you know, it's almost like Silicon Valley, but not. And so it's very easy to sort of disassociate with them. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I thought that it was like, I feel like that games are a really good platform for or medium for experiencing those kind of emotional experiences that we wouldn't experience otherwise and mm. I found that with another game which was Gone Home oh yes yes yep. none of my siblings are gay at all mm-hmm. essentially and so playing that game and going through that journey of going through you know your sister's objects and the like sort of getting that feeling of wondering if your sister isn't heterosexual and thinking hey maybe she likes girls and I found that was really powerful because I guess some people say that they've always known that they were gay and other people sort of go through a journey of realizing that they are but as like a family member someone that's a bit more distant you hear some others say oh I always knew but then you had others and they're they're quite shocked and I always wonder if because I've not experienced that myself if Gone Home is a good example of that but it's the closest I've been. Yeah sure. Yeah so I found Mm. that really interesting and I I did really identify with the way that the player character does go through those objects like it's really sentimental in a way like looking to the past and you you pick up an object or a photograph and you're like you wonder about the motivations of your family at the time and maybe seeing your mum young or like your brother's young you're like I wonder what they were thinking back then or Gone Home was great I thought. No I found it really interesting as well I guess I've, what I really enjoyed about that one was you're sort of constantly going through this process of reflection yes. the whole time and you're kind of, okay, like, this isn't interesting, like, you, there's newspaper clippings and that, and you sort of look at it and go, this is interesting, what does this mean? Does this mean anything that I maybe didn't know before as yes. this yeah. person in this family? Because in a way, you're also differentiating between what my character knows what the character knows about their family and about their family history and all that sort of stuff, and you're also differentiating between as a player... Just, is this an important object as well? And what do I know and what kind of detective work am I doing? And what kind of suggestions do I have about what I'm supposed to be discovering here? Which I find that, that exploration aspect really interesting. I think so too. And just mm. like slowly putting the pieces together yes. and like, ah. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess for me, a game that I feel a really strong connection with was Life is Strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that game, you're Max and you're in this town. In this town, there's a girl who you used to be really close with years ago, but you moved away and now you've come back. You see, So you see this whole world through Max's eyes. You discover in a moment that you can turn back time. It sort of changes how you view everything about the game. There were a couple of really strong scenes. In particular, there was one with a girl who was going to commit suicide because she was being bullied. And that moment I'll never forget because it was so it was so impactful on me. She, so Max constantly has this inner monologue. And when you walk up to this building where this girl's on the top of and she says, what's going on, you know? And you're, when you go up and talk to her, you have these decisions you have to make and the screen freezes and there's, it's sort of a flickering, like a shadow mm-hmm. effect or like echo effect on the screen and it's a little bit red and there's this humming sort of atmospheric sound playing that's very intense and you think, oh my God, what am I going to pick? What am I going to pick? And that's how I feel when I make big decisions in real life. I have to make a switch decision. It was kind of quite a good effect to how it feels. The way the angles are used as well in that to be really, like suddenly the angle changes and you think, oh wait, what's happening? I think the monologue helped a lot and that use of audio um, visual techniques in just really feeling like I was 
experiencing the world through Max's eyes. And I, yeah, I thought it was really powerful. And when you read about uh, Raoul, Raoul and Barbet, I believe, uh, the French, so sorry if I'm saying their names wrong, but they were the people who came up with the game. And I've watched a few interviews with them. And they said, you know, we designed this game to be really impactful and to deal with hard issues like bullying and drugs and romance and all of these sort of issues and to help to try to help communicate what it's like for a lot of people, particularly teenagers, you know, uh, because it's in episodes. After they had the episode with this girl who um, was going through bullying and was going to commit suicide, they actually got a lot of letters from people saying thank you so much for showing that. And a lot of people were saying, I went through something similar and I really appreciate how you dealt with it. And some were saying, like, this has actually helped me understand how people who I know have gone through really hard times felt... And so I felt, you know, like they were really successful. That's what they set out to do. And I think they just did such a beautiful job of it. I think so too, but I actually differentiate from you in the sense that I always felt like a friend almost following Max around. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily in those moments where, you know, she's with Chloe and it's it's sort of intimate or, you know, that moment where she is trying to um, prevent Kate from jumping. But I always felt like her inner monologue was sort of talking to a friend almost. Okay. You know, like when you see an object, it, it would sort of be me like pointing at that object and her giving me her feedback on that. Mm-hmm. But in moments where Kate was about to jump and commit suicide, I suddenly felt as if Max no longer mattered and it was about me. Wow. And I'm like, well, that's interesting because I'm like, am I actually identifying with Max at this point or am I personally feeling as if I need to save Kate? And I mean, yes, Max is my is essentially my tool for doing that, but I, I honestly felt like it was more me. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Because you exp- yeah, so it's experiencing the game... Maybe Max is a conduit. Or yes, or, or I maybe, think so. Yeah, it sort of brings you closer to experiencing these issues and these themes in a way you reflect on what you would do. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it was the, probably the only moment in the game where that actually occurred. Oh. I think in all the other times I was very much situated within Max, particularly in making decisions about her relationship with Chloe. <laughs> or even, actually, I don't necessarily want to spoil anything, so if you haven't played Life is Strange, maybe skip the next 10 <laughs> seconds. But when Chloe keeps dying, oh my I God. very, very astutely felt like Max. Like I, was, I felt so much empathy for her. It I'm like, imagine so if painful. your best friend kept dying. It was so painful. And actually, that that clip they have where she's unwell and she's in the bed and she says you know what to do basically she's telling her to kill her yeah we i was playing Mm -hmm. it in a group and we all kind of stopped and looked at each other and went wow we're going to have a really serious discussion right now about what we would do and that really impacted me me too yeah Yeah. it was very intense yeah i I guess um in a in a slightly lighter way (laughs) um (laughs) in in dragon age 2 i've quite but i felt i experienced the world through my character quite strongly in that the decisions I made were again based on sort of my opinions but at times where I thought oh this is a hard decision I tried to think okay we'll think about this character in the world she's living in her family history because your family passed away in this game and you have a lot of crazy things happen in in your uh, party as well mm-hmm. and I tr- whenever I got stuck on a decision I tried to think well hang on it's not you you're also this character think about that character in the world what what kind of reflections would she be happening right now? So so that was quite an interesting experience because at the end there was a, a decision I got really stuck on. I said to Harris, I said, what do I do? I'm, I just don't know what to do. And I just thought about it for a little while and went, okay, well, maybe the problem is that you're thinking about it from your perspective and not taking into account enough the actual what the game's context is giving you. Mm-hmm. So that was, yeah, I guess that was kind of an interesting experience for me. And I ended up picking a decision based on both, but thinking more clearly about what my character if she was in the game world and wasn't 
controlled by me, what she might do kind of helps me make that decision. So I find that really interesting because this feeds into my next point. Oh, perfect. My next example, which is actually The Legend of Zelda. So obviously Link is a silent protagonist. And so obviously in Zelda, you don't really make a lot of decisions. And so it's really easy to put yourself, well, arguably it's very easy to put yourself in the place of Link because, you know, the values that he sort of expresses are heroism and honor and you know you're the good guy and that's what the plot of Zelda is you're becoming this hero of the ages so to speak and so it seems like it's really easy to sort of put yourself in his place but I find that it's almost difficult for me to do so except in certain sections of the game that I remember I'm like yes at this moment I can truly relate to Link because he is silent, you know, we have no inner monologue. There's no dialogue for him whatsoever. Mm. And so he is this completely blank slate. But there are certain moments in the game, for example, the first time that you enter Hyrule Field and you hear this this sort of magical theme suddenly emerge and there's just this sprawling lands in front of you and it just fosters this absolute sense of joy that you have this adventure ahead of you and I think that's sort of the one moment where I was like yes I can totally imagine how Link feels like this one he's probably th- feeling a bit apprehensive but also he's he's left his sort of childhood home you know he's off to mature and become a man and I can totally relate to that and I feel like that moment in particular is something that I don't particularly get from games so much anymore like those really designed moments Mm. in Ocarina of Time especially when you enter Hyrule Field for the first time it's particularly powerful when you when you do that and I feel like there's not really those moments in games now where the system kind of comes together and you're fully able in a way Mm. to experience that moment because you have a lot of cutscenes and they're amazing and all these sort of pre-established sections but this is just sort of it's more interactive and yet it's very much designed to make you feel that way i think something that comes to mind is in the first red dead redemption when you first get to mexico and this song, I think it's Compass. Oh, I can't think of the artist now, but it's a beautiful song that's calming, almost a little bit sad as well. And what you just go over this bridge and you're on this, well, when I did it, I went over this ridge and this song plays and it's so, it's so strange because throughout the game, that doesn't happen. You know, you don't have, like, it, when I say song, it wasn't a background music it was like it's a um, it was actually placed there to yes. foster that that certain feeling yeah. or to make you relate to the character in some yeah. way it's sort of a moment of yeah you're discovering a new land and things are different here and it was and people I often see on forums people are, are quite often talk about that moment and that I remember because that really struck me I just went wow I wasn't expecting that and it totally made me feel things <laughs> yeah and which and in a game where it took so long to get to that point it was, the game it's been described to me as Grand Theft Auto but Cowboys <laughs> it seems a bit it seems quite unusual but there's, there are some really quite meaningful and moving I suppose yes. moments it's like, like almost yeah. like a, a perfect unison. Mm. Like you are feeling exactly as John Marston is feeling at mm. that moment. And it's very difficult to argue against that, I feel, <laughs> because it is so set up. You know, it is so rigid in its in its actual structure. 
yes, this is how you should be feeling now. Mm. And, you know, if you're not feeling this right now, then something's obviously gone wrong <laughs> in how we've designed this game yeah. in terms of its, you know, emotional impact. I guess I, I feel uh, New Automata comes to mind um, a little bit in that, of course, they say we, we're not allowed to have emotions. We're androids and they don't mm-hmm. really go in. Well, there's a whole thing about that. But, but moments I felt really moving was, again, um, the soundtrack's amazing, but when you visit a new area and it's sort of the camera pans up a bit and you see this beautiful, amazing, you know, this crumbling city and this beautiful track starts playing and it's so moving as a player to begin a game and they sort of go, here's what you're doing, here's the space mm-hmm. you're going to be in. And, as yeah, as much as I suppose the androids probably don't feel that way, well, maybe they do, maybe they don't, it's a bit of a debatable thing in that game. I found that moments like that quite moving. I think so too. Yeah. Going back to the Legend of Zelda quickly, so when I was growing up, I had a Nintendo 64 and I really didn't have access to the paratex that surrounded Zelda. Mm -hmm. And so as an eight-year-old, I didn't know if Link was a boy or a girl because the save that I was using, so my mom had bought Ocarina of Time secondhand and the person that she'd bought it off still had their save on there. So I just loaded up their save and they were like at the desert temple. So they'd completed the game. They'd obviously just gone back to this temple to collect the collectibles essentially. And so I never knew, because I hadn't started from the beginning. I just loaded That's up this so save. Funny. I didn't know. How long I, did it take you to start a new game when you were a kid? Um, It, it didn't take long. Okay. Yeah, so I found that really interesting and I felt like I almost liked that I didn't know Mm -hmm. you know I could pose my own desire upon Link so to speak and so I was very happy believing that Link was a she yeah totally yeah and I I mean I was disappointed when I started you know a new save and he was referred to as the boy from the forest I'm Mm. like no you're you're ruining my identity yeah exactly and I also I didn't know that Link was Link because the save had a certain name associated with it. This is the the pre-save. And so I thought Link was Zelda. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's Zelda. So, you know, that's also the problem. So I definitely fell into that stereotype of... Oh, (laughs) I've seen this. Yeah, whether you don't even know who... Yeah, exactly. Link is not a she. Because Link is quite androgynous. You know, Mm. he, he is quite feminine. And obviously that challenges the gender roles that are established in our reality. Mm. So it's very natural if you didn't know to assume by the title of the game that your main character is Zelda. (laughs) Yeah, that (laughs) That would be an expectation. Yeah, exactly. That's just logic. (laughs) I guess the final point I kind of think might be interesting to talk about is how we view characters in games with a set design. I'm kind of thinking of games like Overwatch or Smash Brothers where they're set characters. In theory, (laughs) they have backstories, which I have to admit, for Overwatch, I have friends who are really into the backstories. It doesn't really mean much to me. But yeah, games where the mechanics are sort of combined with these appearances and you pick one that you want to play at the moment. Because for me, I haven't played Overwatch for a while, but I got really into it a good six months or so. And I felt that the character appearance definitely had an impact on me, but I had to first think about mechanics because unfortunately, even if you love the character, but you're crap at (laughs) playing them, it's not very good. Like, I think Mercy and Anna look really cool. Like, one of Mercy's skins that came in Chinese New Year is of a phoenix, which I thought was the coolest thing ever. And I was like, she looks amazing. And Anna is Egyptian, so some of her skins are kind of a little bit Asian-Egyptian feel, which I get very excited about. But I'm really bad at playing them, so I don't play them. I mean, my, my first character was Zanyata, who is really cool because he's a robotic yogi, which I think it's such a strange, cool idea. You know, he's like, he's attained enlightenment and he's a robot android. I just think that's really cool. 
he has two Ra skins, like the Egyptian god. So, of course, I only ever play the Ra skin, right? <laughs> and, I, and every time I look at it, I think, oh, it looks, so, it looks beautiful. It's got gold and blue and it just looks so good. Yeah, and, you know, like I, I play Mei and Mei is adorable. And, of course, I pick the skin that's got, like, teal because teal is one of my favourite colours. I try to pick for mechanics and but then make sure I really like the appearance as well because that's still such a big part of it for me. Yeah, I feel like I can relate with a certain game, which is Dead by Daylight. Mm -hmm. So obviously the killer characters in these games, <laughs> they have certain abilities. All killers have specific abilities and that really dictates how you play yeah. because some killers are, you know, more long distance base, you know, they're throwing things at survivors from a distance. Otherwise, you know, they're more melee, you know, you're chasing them around with a chainsaw. But there's two characters I particularly like in terms of appearance, and that is the Huntress and the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Now, these characters are, in terms of, I want to say difficulty, because obviously the difficulty is subjective when it comes yeah. to different modes People of People like play. to get, yeah. say it's not, <laughs> but it, it is. It totally yeah. is. It totally is. Yeah. So... The Huntress and the Spirit are intermediate to hard. It takes some time to master their styles. They're more difficult killers to play. And so because I don't have a huge amount of time to you know, put into Dead by Daylight, I kind of avoid playing them if I want to play as killer because they are so specialised. But I love the way they look. They are so bay. So <laughs> it's just this constant... <laughs> For me, it is more about the mechanics because yeah. I really just want to play. And I do desperately want to play these characters just because of the way they look and mm. their cosmetics are amazing. But at the end of the day, it is really about what they can do. Sure. Yeah, and yeah. what's going to get me the most kills. <laughs> yeah, because it's not necessarily like an MMO or something where if you maybe you like the appearance of um, a mage you're not naturally very good at playing a mage, but it's not necessarily the end of the world because if you play on your own, if you die, it doesn't matter, right? Whereas yeah. in these games, it is, performance is it really is the key thing. Exactly. Yeah. So you don't want to embarrass yourself. And as killer, there is a lot of pressure because obviously Dead by Daylight is an asymmetrical game. It is four against one. Mm. So as the killer, you're the host, you know, and you can get bullied in the the after chat if you're a shit killer. Unfortunately, oh, Dead wow. by Daylight is really toxic. Anyway, moving on to survivors <laughs> in Dead by Daylight, however, the toxic people, even though some killers are too, but, you know, survivors are the worst, just oh, saying. Um, a lot of people, I feel, do tend to choose survivors based on rather how the fandom has constructed them. So obviously killers and survivors in Dead by Daylight do have established backstories, but the fandom has done a really, really good job at assigning their own sort of characteristics okay. to those survivors and the players that play them. For example, if you're playing a Claudette, you're probably sneaking around in the shadows, stealthily doing generators, healing your teammates and just not going near the killer, mm -hmm. unless you're like a, a rank one Claudette in which you're probably holding a flashlight and you've probably got a brand new part and you're probably in a posse, survive with friends and you're probably wanting to go in to bully the killer and get an easy win. But if you're playing someone like Dwight, who is sort of like this pizza boy that likes to hide in lockers, then you're kind of associated with that meme quality. If that makes <laughs> like you're wanting to sort of encapsulate that and sure. keep it sort of 
keep the fandom surrounding that character going. Mm-hmm. And then you've got like this other killer called the Cannibal, and his power is basically. So there's two characters in De- uh, two killers in Dead by Daylight that can use a chainsaw. There's the hillbilly, who's generally considered to be like top tier, and then there's the cannibal, and he's a lot lower. Mm-hmm. As because his chainsaw power is sort of wildly rushing his chainsaw around in like a circle, so he was kind of designed to combat hook. Okay. How can you say like camping the the hook as a player? So waiting for the killer to not even put the survivor on the hook, and you're already there waiting to get them off, mm-hmm. and that's considered terrible team play because a killer can just wait there and then hit the person on the, on the hook again like it's not good to do so in order to stop survivors you know bullying the killer by doing that and you know bullying the poor person that's on the hook and probably going to get hit again mm. they introduce the cannibal okay and so when people think about the cannibal they think about a killer that's probably going to be around the hook waiting okay yeah and that yep. annoys people because they sort of see cannibals as really toxic players that really are just in for the kills and are really competitive <laughs> Oh my God. It's rather funny. than yeah it's, no it is because I've watched people say that people who play this character are like this now and yeah. I was like, well, that's, what? <laughs> well, I always think about Hanzo mains oh like, that's no, the big one I do right? have to admit to you I totally buy into that which is really unfair <laughs> and I try to I say it more as a joke than anything else but it, yeah it's kind of funny it's sort of just like yeah. an edge lord I watch yes. anime think yeah exactly which is terrible yeah. and and Widowmaker. Oh, now I sound really bad. I'm making these stereotypes. No, but it's true, right? <laughs> these stereotypes exist. And yeah, they yeah. exist for a reason. And people are consistently having that reinforced. Because, <laughs> yeah, you know, if, if, if I'm a Zen and I... Because I shoot orbs to heal people, so it like, hovers over them. A fire will be up in the air, God knows how high above me. I can't actually target them and they're spamming, I need healing. Or the widow will be, God knows where, up in the building where she's getting shot at. But being a sniper should move if you were discovered, but doesn't move and just spams, I need healing. I'm like, dude, I don't even know how you got up there. I can't fly. <laughs> and yeah, you, you do start having these kind of associations, I suppose. You do. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And even if it's like almost like a perception bias. So yeah. you see a Hanzo main do something wrong or you see a cannibal camping, you're just like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and even, even in terms of picking characters, Zen's cool. Like I like the concept of Zen, and Mei's adorable. She's like Chinese, and she's in this really cute, warm winter gear. And appearance does matter. But I remember at one stage, I was trying to play. I was like, I should really try to learn some kind of tank. And I picked Roadhog cause, just because my friend said, "Oh, have a go," because it's not too hard to pick up. And I thought, oh, he's, if you don't know, he's like this massive obese guy with a huge gut, and he. Yeah, I was like, this is not my kind of character. Like, at first I was really put off, but then I unlocked his Christmas skin, which makes him look kind of goofy. And then I felt a bit more comfortable playing him because I thought it was, it's kind of having a joke, you know, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah, it is funny now I think about it, that totally impacted me. And at first I didn't want to play him, but now I see it as kind of funny because he's got these Rudolph ears on and he's got, you know, he looks more ridiculous now than this big gross guy, like. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting as well. I feel like I almost choose characters now because of tradition. Like, mm-hmm. for example, in Mario Kart. Now, I don't play Mario Kart competitively, so I'm sure that some people do choose certain characters because they have, like, a slight edge over the <laughs> other ones. But otherwise, Mario Kart for me, because I've always been playing Peach and Dry Bones and Toad forever, it kind of feels like I choose those characters because I I just always have like it's not necessarily about their aesthetics anymore although I will say because Stormy Daniels did compare like Donald (laughs) Trump's bits to Toad saying they were like Toad I'm not too keen on like playing Toad anymore (laughs) 
It's yeah, just, fair enough. Put <laughs> everyone off. It's just anybody ruined. played Tony? <laughs> exactly. Oh, how weird. I know. It's just, yeah, that was a very disturbing sort of extract from her biography <laughs> that went viral a few months ago. <laughs> Yeah. I, I guess for me, like, the only racing games I've played before, when I was a kid, I played Muppet Race Mania, which I love the Muppets a lot, but I think it's not very, it's not cool anymore. Nobody really knows them that well. But I always played Kermit or Sam the Eagle because they're my favourites. So regardless of the car that they, they have, I was like, they're my mm-hmm. favourites, I have to play them. So I think, yeah. to be fair, their cars are probably kind of average. Like I was like, I have to play them, they're my favourites. I can't play someone else. So that, yeah. But again, that's not really a competitive game. It's a fun Yeah, game. yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so I guess from our conversation and going back to the point we made earlier and drawing back on Shaw's work, Mm. how do you feel about identification? Is it so important, you know, or is it this really such a subjective (laughs) sort of element that Mm. I don't know if we can really discuss it in such a way that is really... Tangible? um, Yes, tangible is a good word there, yeah. I mean, because obviously, yes, we know that there are these certain elements and sort of behaviours associated with identifications and motivations associated with identification. But at the same time, even through this conversation, (laughs) we've said, actually, I play this character because it's tradition or I play this character because of the associations that it has with the fandom or I play this character because they're hot. Mm. Geralt, for example. (laughs) (laughs) And because I'm forced to. I just laugh at his voice. (laughs) (laughs) When I hear the word identification, I sort of feel like it's a very restrictive word and I think, okay, well, my first thought is when we say identification it means you feel like that character or that Mm -hmm. you understand exactly what it's like to be like that character whereas in my work and in my like it is very subjective so everybody has it is going to feel differently I yeah I very much subscribe to this idea of what I would consider to be dualism the idea of becoming where in a lot of games there is the opportunity for you to to experience something different and that does impact you and it doesn't mean that you know exactly what it's like that what it would be like to be that character and it doesn't mean that you become that character but you transform a little bit. You take a little bit of that character and you change. And I think not yeah, not all games do that. You don't and your approach of course your approach matters. Again, people are assemblages, games are assemblages. Oh that's my whole thing, you know, it's it's not a given thing. And like we said with the categories, you can vary so much. Whether it's at the moment I'm three of these categories out of four or whether today I feel different to how I played yesterday or in mm-hmm. games different, you know. I think it's all about the potentials. I think so as well. And yeah, for me, I I do really enjoy games where I feel a strong sense of effect or becoming, where I do feel like I am impacted in some way and I do get a chance to experience something, And um, which I guess is why Life is Strangely impacted me so much. I can't say I disagree at all. I think potentially there does need to be more of a sort of exploration in the literature using qualitative methods in regards to identification because I think it would draw out some really interesting perspectives on identification. And I think Shaw really does do that in gaming at the edge. And I think it would be really interesting to sort of look at this through audience reception studies sure. as well mm. or using their established methodologies because I always find that once I've finished a game, I'll go online and I'll see how other people have receive the game and I find that some people are really really adept at describing elements of characters that I didn't necessarily pick up on myself and yet when they put a term Mm. onto that emotion or characteristic then I'm like yes the 
that's exactly how I felt, even though I couldn't really define it at the time. Mm. So I find that really interesting as well, how even though we may think of this as a subjective experience, quite often there tends to be this sort of unanimity with certain characters. Great. Thanks a lot for listening, guys, and talk to you soon.